SAFM leading the conversation. Night Talk, giving you depth and texture to the conversations that matter. 12 minutes after 10 p.m. This is the Monday edition of Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for joining me. Really, really do appreciate it. Responding to parliamentary questions about the state of our military, the Minister of Defense, Tandi Mudise, had to say this. The defense force is becoming progressively more unsustainable in terms of the declining defense baseline allocation, and we have now reached a point where the Republic must decide on the kind of defense force it wants and what it can afford. Now, I don't know about you, but in recent history, I've only understood our defense force to be deployed by and large on peacekeeping missions and more uh, more contemporarily in the local domestic context it has been deployed for peace uh, for, for for civilian peacekeeping right in south africa you would remember the july unrest and it was also then deployed uh, for uh, during during covid-19 for regulation enforcement and at some point it was deployed uh, on the cape flats um, on the cape flats area for of course gang re- gang violence related uh, um, matters over there and that's it we i don't remember a time uh, that it had to protect us from an external attack i don't remember a time where it had to defend us from a civilian uprising of any sort and by an uprising i mean like an arab spring type of uh, civ- uh, civil war type of uprising i don't remember any of that and i don't think it's ever had to do that but the question then is what does this mean for our role geopolitically on the continent and peacekeeping missions? Are we going to have to pull out of the countries where our military is currently deployed for peacekeeping mission efforts? Professor Patrick Bond from the University of Johannesburg joins us. Prof, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Uh, welcome to Night Talk. Uh, does this mean that we're going to have to pull out of the countries we're currently doing uh, peacekeeping operations in? Well, it's great to be with you, Oliver. This is so important for us all to discuss because it's not just the tax monies and the austerity program of the Treasury, uh, which is what Minister Tandy Modise is really referring to, the squeeze on the budget and the difficulties of maintaining a, a strong force. But it is, I think, you're right, the question, what are the troops doing? And is peacekeeping indeed the right way to describe, especially the two missions that are most uh, controversial? Uh, there was, uh, there were two prior that... Uh, uh, you may remember Lesotho about 25 years yeah. ago in 1998. Uh, there was a attempted coup and uh, South Africans uh, flew across to the Katse Dam wall because it was a threat that it might be destroyed. And that would have uh, created havoc in all sorts of ways, including for Johannesburg water consumers. And also there was the Central African Republic 10 years ago, yeah. where a very embarrassing uh, deployment and a retreat after about 15 of our troops were killed. Um, and that was in the main city, Bangui. And what subsequently emerged was that the deal that uh, allowed uh, SANDF to go there was based partly on investments that our ruling party, its investment arm, Chancellor House, had made uh, in relation to oil and diamonds. Now, the other two that are important, DRC, Monusco, it's called, it's a, a United Nations mission in the eastern side of the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, has been subject to protests by the local folk for over a year. And then in northern Mozambique, the peacekeeping has been extremely controversial because it's in defense of uh, Total Energies, the big yeah. French company trying to take uh, gas. So those are the major deployments as well as in South Sudan, sorry, yeah. in uh, uh, Sudan. 
So would we then, uh, I mean, there, there, there was, of course, the you, you've outlined a number of these peacekeeping missions that are on that have happened, that we participated in. Some are ongoing. I understand that we still have some level of a presence in, in South Sudan offering peacekeeping uh, uh, resources there, including um, uh, boots on the ground. If we have to reimagine what our military does, would that include saying we can't afford to continue to assist uh, war-torn security in stable countries on the continent and that we're pulling out entirely and that we're going to have a reserve military only for the purposes of if we potentially are attacked one day? Yes. Now, the attacks are interesting, aren't they? Because that would be a justification that uh, state uh, resources should go. Currently, uh, there are uh, international funds, especially United Nations peacekeeping funds in the eastern DRC and in Sudan, and it's in the Darfur area. The main controversy there, do you remember uh, eight years ago when al-Bashir, the Sudanese dictator, was visiting and there was an international criminal court warrant, as yeah. there has been for Vladimir Putin this year. And at that point, there was an attempted hostage taking of South African forces. So there was, in a sense, an attack by Sudanese forces who were worried that their president, uh, al-Bashir, would be actually arrested here in, in South Africa. Now, he got out very quickly as the courts began to rule that the arrest warrant had to be served, and he flew out quickly through Vatagruf. Now, that's a very interesting case, one that didn't happen. But what we are seeing is a threat, for example, from northern Mozambique that the United States embassy had transmitted to uh, its citizens and to uh, South Africa. Do you remember last October, and it was around the time of the Gay Pride March in Santon, and there was a apparently, according to the U.S. Embassy, yeah. potential, and it was sometimes attributed, I don't have any proof that this was the line of communication from al-Shabaab through whatever communications were intercepted, and the U.S. Embassy said, better watch out, and this was at a time when uh, gay and lesbian activists really wanted to, to be in the streets at the end of COVID, and they were very brave, and they went there, and nothing happened, and once again, the U.S information seemed to be a little dubious. But if you recall, we actually were putting these 1,500 troops, costing about a billion rand a year, into northern Mozambique because Emmanuel Macron had visited in, uh, it was uh, May 2021, just after Total had had lost some of its subcontractors in a fight uh, in northern Mozambique. The Islamic insurgents, al-Shabaab, had killed um, a few dozen people around uh, the Afungi Peninsula, where they have a $20 billion uh, uh, liquefied natural gas processing plant. So that's a single biggest investment in Africa. Those are the sorts of threats. Meanwhile, we have trucks being burned, 800 SANDF troops deployed there uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. And also we had the incidents in 2021 where troops had to be deployed during the the rioting after uh, ex-President Zuma was arrested. And as you already said, a little bit of deployment during COVID and of course in the uh, Cape Flats. So it's a mixed bag, isn't it? And it just goes to show that this defense force is being stretched and their equipment isn't up to snuff. And there are private uh, players, for example, the Paramount Group, that's also put some of their own private, um, they they have a sort of mercenary, as some would call them, or or private army force, and they're being deployed in Mozambique and a few other places, as well as selling arms privately. Meanwhile, Danel is uh, pretty much near bankruptcy, has been bailed out a bit. That's the state-owned uh, arms company and then arms corps which acquires uh they've they've been doing deals for example there's a question did they do a deal with with russia and lady r they're doing deals with nato but they're still not doing enough deals to make uh, our military industry profitable 
Yeah. Give us a call if you want to be a part of this conversation. Do you have a question or a comment for uh, Professor Bond this evening? The number to dial is 086-0002032. I'm taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of that, we continue the conversation. You're listening to Night Talk. I'm in conversation with Professor Patrick Bond. And the real question is, what, what does... What's the state of our military and what impact does that have on our security and our geopolitical relationships and efforts across the continent? You can be a part of the conversation. 86 0 2032 I'd love to hear from you this evening. Prof Bond, the, the real question any South African would ask if they hear that our military is broke would be the question, if we were to be attacked, would we be defending ourselves? Would we be capable of defending ourselves? But Who's likely to attack us? We don't have enemies, do we? Well, our own people. Isn't that the irony, isn't it? Yeah. That uh, what with uh, the incredible, uh, let's call it uh, socioeconomic oppression, which is the highest uh, inequality in the world, the highest unemployment rate among industrial countries, uh, extreme poverty, that probably if you use 50 rand a day as a sort of measure of the upper bound of income is uh, nearly two thirds of the society. And it got much worse during COVID. And there are some ameliorative, uh, let's say the 350 rand, it hasn't increased with the high inflation rate, but that's the, the monthly uh, amount that was going to unemployed people between ages 18 and, and 60. After 60, you get a couple of thousand. If you're below 18, you're around the 400 rand per month. And as you recall, after the big riots in July 2021, uh, that uh, may be catalyzed by President Zuma's arrest, but certainly had their own logic and the logic of a sort of powder keg exploding. Some of that money was put back having that 350 brand having been uh, ended as a, yeah. as a monthly grant for about 10 million people it was put back and that's in a way the the first line of defense which is uh, throw money at, at the problem of extreme poverty inequality yeah. and unemployment and maybe we need to do much more of that and then that doesn't work in the whether the trucks that are being burned uh, about 20 or so trucks 800 deployed uh, troops now to try to prevent that some arrests we'll have to see but i think we should be asking is this value for money and does it as we saw in covid sometimes lead to those troops misbehaving uh, they yeah. didn't behave very well during some of the lockdowns there were some uh, citizens who were killed just sitting out in their garden drinking a beer there were people in, in the cape flats who felt that the sandf deployment didn't work very well and then of course the big deployment the a billion rand a year just for those 1500 troops is in northern mozambique and the question there is does that uh, presence help to keep the peace Six thousand people have died a million displaced about half of them now coming back but really i think many experts uh, closer to the ground than me would agree that the al-shabaab threat hasn't gone away it's been moved around and eight uh, deaths last month of mozambican troops uh, in an attack by al-shabaab show that the uh, presence of roughly 3,000 of the rwandan and southern african mission in mozambique mainly sandf troops haven't yet solved that problem there is also the idea that and we know this to be a fact that there are underground cell groups of jihadist movements 
uh, present in South Africa, operating in South Africa. We know that Al-Qaeda has uh, some presence in the country. Al-Shabaab, which is an uh, appendix to uh, Al-Qaeda, has some level of operation in the country. And um, there, there, of course, was uh, the big arrest that happened uh, late last year, early this year, of the Israeli radical group uh, that were operating out of Bryanston, um, you know, having access to deadly weapons and explosives. Um, there's a lot of radical underground radical groups operating in, in South Africa. And if there were to be an attack uh, by any one of these or these fighting within each other, uh, the the first line of defense would have to be intelligence detecting that before it is the military being able to detect that. Uh, would then the military be uh, capable of being able to to be the civilian shield it needs to be in such an instance? I don't know. And the dilemma is that these would be uh, cells that, as you say, sometimes pop up and are, are uh, um, sometimes uh, demobilized, but they often are deployed in other parts of the world. So Syria, for example, had yeah. uh, South Africans taking part. Or uh, these are these are very difficult. And you know the the gray listing of South Africa was allegedly partly because of terrorist financing controls that in the Treasury and the Reserve Bank weren't strong enough. And uh, there were also illicit financial flows and, and other criminal uh, acts in our financial system that are, I think, much more widespread. So until we really know whether, you know, if there's any expose that could really uh, un, un, you know, clarify whether this is a generalized problem or just a few isolated cells that are directed outwards, I think that remains to be seen. Since there is a small uh, radical Islamic uh, group in this country, but no prospect of taking power, it's not uh, apparently the kind of threat that would lead uh, one, for example, as you see with Boko Haram or some of the other, you know, the Al-Shabaab and ISIS factions all over uh, the, the Horn of Africa and the Sahel and, and maybe Tanzania and certainly in northern Mozambique yeah. would require a real military response. I think these are still so small in, in number. And as I say, directed outwards, we, we haven't really seen attacks inside the country. Yeah. The real epistemic work that needs to be done is to ask the question, what does our democracy look like without a, a capable uh, military? And I, and I guess then the subsequent question, the more first principle question to ask is, are there any f democracies that don't have militaries? Any modern, can modern democracies function without a military? Or is a, the presence and existence of a military a foundational prerequisite to sovereignty? sovereignty? Well, if there is a sovereign threat and we don't uh, have any neighbors that have any prospect of invading the nearest uh, major army is uh, the Zimbabwean army. And there's been never been any sense that uh, uh, we certainly would say border skirmishes exist, but those are really, you know, cattle rustling and that sort of thing. Um, there are occasional uses of the SANDF on the borders, but that's again, largely uh, policing the border for uh, illegal immigrants. But when you think of uh, countries around the world, probably Costa Rica comes to mind as one where the army uh, had been dissolved. And occasionally, I mean, I worked at one point for President Aristide of uh, Haiti and his attempts to demilitarize were very important. Um, often uh, you could take away something that's uh, typically quite a critical factor in whether a society is violent, and that's just handguns or, um, or, or rifles. And uh, the countries that have done that, including Zimbabwe, had a very dramatic drop uh, the 
point where they had independence and kind of gathered up all the guns and there were none of the kinds of uh, episodes of gun violence and shootings yeah. that uh, South Africa suffers. So I think those would be other factors above and beyond whether our budget uh, is sufficiently generous to the SANDF. And SANDF, which of course in the old days, before um, the early 90s, was notorious, what with its uh, invasions of other countries and its suppression of local people and its racism. And uh, a new SANDF instead of an SADF uh, was, I think, welcome to everyone. And, but yet it is a good question, should we be putting uh, all the kinds of you know 40 billion or so a year into it in fact i think it'll be for the medium term three-year period 140 yeah. billion and that's a lot of money that could be spent on alleviating the kinds of conditions that create the, the social unrest in the country does our polity have the depth to answer the question around statehood uh, and its relationship to the military uh, effectively what i'm asking you do our politicians have the capacity to reimagine uh, the role and shape and configuration of our military? Well, there are some extraordinarily useful ways that the SENDF has shown in times of crisis. And I don't mean policing, I don't mean their deployment, but I mean things like, you know, when our neighbors have crises like Mozambique has had because of flooding uh, or uh, the South African uh, climate crisis that we saw with the rain bombs that hit Durban in April, May 2022, yeah. then SANDF can quickly come in. You know, in the United States, where I did my studies, they had this U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And we know our engineering departments in uh, municipalities and provinces and nation national uh, departments is pretty weak. And if the Army could then say, well, look, we can move in fairly quickly and put in the stormwater drainage and rebuild the roads and the bridges that have been destroyed by floods. It's ironic, isn't it, though, that we have an SANDF that's in northern Mozambique defending a big French company. Yeah. In a sense, it's black bodies defending the white company, white yeah. shareholders. And what they're doing is to extract gas, methane gas. As it's burned, it's 85 times more potent than than uh, carbon dioxide, and that creates yeah. the climate crises, yeah. like the cyclones in northern Mozambique or the rain bombs of KZN. And it's it's a tragedy that we haven't got that working the other way around, that the SANDF helps build adaptation, resilience, and stronger uh, roads, bridges, and infrastructure. Yeah. Let's take a call. Kotsa out in Midrand. What's your comment or question? Good evening. Welcome to the show. Uh, how are you? And what uh, and Look, uh, I, I want to check with the prof, man. Uh, prof, we, we are very worried as uh, young professionals sitting in this country, watching the manner in which uh, our judiciary becomes so docile, whereby uh, international communities, countries are dictating us. Look at the manner in which uh, the USA uh, and the West in general, they're doing as they wish. You can talk about the issue of the man in which they're looting our coal. You can talk about the issue of the BRICS, whereby you are a member state of the BRICS, but they keep on undermining that kind of agreement and our membership within the BRICS, uh, mm. like dictating every time to us. But the biggest problem and the fact that from where I'm sitting, uh, I pointed towards our judiciary. Our judiciary instead of uh, becoming patriotic, our judiciary has been dictated uh, by uh, political parties like the DA, whereby they have even turned it into a playground. Can you comment around it, Prof? Be be before I give Prof a chance to comment on around it, uh, Koto, do you maybe want to maybe just point to a particular judgment or a decision coming out of the courts that you think yeah. uh, demonstrates your point? Yeah. 
the point in, in question is about uh, the arrest of President uh, Putin. Okay. Yeah, to say whereby DA went to court and forced that the court must uh, endorse the arrest of President Putin while uh, 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 Russia is not a member state of ICC. Including even the US, yeah, not the yeah, 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 no, familiar with that. But yes. what what was the court decision there? The court decision, yes, they 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 they, they, they cited that uh, if uh, the president Putin can come to this country, he's supposed to be arrested. I don't want to be a party pooper, but there's no such decision by any court in South Africa. Uh, that case never actually got sit down uh, for hearing. Uh, there was a court, or there was a cost order on a, on an unrelated matter to the main case, uh, and the only decision the court uh, made pertaining to this was telling the president he needs to make his court papers public. But the court never no. actually made a decision on whether or not there should be a declaratory or a mandatory uh, order. I can send you. I can send you the letter. I can send you the letter from the from the Pretoria High Court, uh, 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 Oliver. If you're not look, if you know about such a decision, please do send uh, it to me. But I don't know of any such decision by any court I, in South I, Africa. I, I will send you immediately okay. when we drop. I will send you now on on the on the Twitter page of SSM. Okay, it's fantastic. There. Thanks a lot. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Let us give it to the prof to comment cool. around it. Cool. Uh, you. you can listen on the radio. Thanks a lot, uh, prof. Do you want to comment on that? Yes, it just draws us into so many fascinating reflections of the power in the society and whether there has been transformation, uh, whether the old judicial system full of white men uh, are sufficiently strong that they exert power and whether the DA in turn is, is influential, especially in their desire to have Vladimir Putin arrested were he to come to the BRICS meeting a month from now. Yeah. And it's a fascinating question because it would have created a constitutional crisis. So the caller is right to sort of say, well, this international criminal court South Africa signed on, but uh, Russia didn't. And certainly the US, which mm. is probably the objectively the most military you know, criminals running around. Tony Blair of the United mm. Kingdom had mm. visited here and he'd been for many, uh, uh, you know, for many years questioned about whether his invasion of Iraq with George W. Bush was legitimate. And the ICC has been criticized fairly, I believe, for not having taken that case properly uh, and mainly prosecuting Africans. So it's a set of uh, interesting questions. I would say, actually, that this question of whether this judiciary, it's not necessarily related to our topic tonight, yeah, Oliver, yeah. but is the, is the judiciary sufficiently transformed that if there were a constitutional crisis in which the president didn't want to arrest a visitor, Vladimir Putin, or maybe, you know, whichever al-Bashir might wander in. Um, and of course, what the court um, has been promised by President Ramaphosa, that is, if Putin does come, he would, uh, 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 you know, comply with this ICC uh, 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 arrest order. But the judges do have a lot of uh, uh, discretion. And we just saw, yeah. even just last week, a military, um, uh, non-military uh, reflection of this in the Peter Maritzburg court, because a white judge named Pete Kuhn overturned a black judge's decision, her name, Nolanto Bam, about whether coal mining could take place in a northern KwaZulu-Natal community. And I could see and feel in the way the judgment was written up that there is a problem of an untransformed judiciary. Yeah. So I think the caller's premise is okay. It's a good time to ask, isn't it, with the BRICS coming and with yeah. uh, hopefully we get some Lady R you know, information about whether the Navy was hosting in the Simonstown court some sort of 
drop off or or uh, uploading of whatever it was we're, we're still in the dark about it and the, you can't really trust the u.s state department given their record yeah. they say all those were weapons <laughs> prof bond thank you so much for your time this evening i really do appreciate so it so nice to be with you all yes yeah, great to be with you night talk giving you depth and texture to the conversations that matter monday to thursdays 10 p.m